This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 102 of the Ink to Foam podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Barry B. Longyear's 1979 short story and Wolfgang Peterson's 1985 film of the same name, Enemy Mine. All right, James. So where were you in 1985? I was just a twinkle in my father's eye. (laughs) Oh, the old twinkle in the father's eye, I see. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, how many years, how many years pre-James is this movie? Uh, eight. Eight years pre-James. Okay, so this was the year I was born. So me and this movie, uh, we're the same age. <laughs> nice. Um, I have a feeling there's going to be people listening who, uh, who saw this movie when it came out. And, uh, you know, that's awesome. And But we're going to bring a more, I don't know, modern look at it because we just both watched it for the first time. For this project like we didn't have that sort of nostalgia i didn't watch this movie growing up um i was completely unfamiliar with it i had never read the material but i read it you know this week for this project so i'm coming at it fresh from a modern perspective however all that being said i could still appreciate the 80s-ness of it and feel a nostalgia for it mm-hmm. yeah i mean it, having seen the things that like satellited this project you know, like other 80s films, every, things from that era, Dennis, young Dennis Quaid, like all of this yeah. stuff uh, it definitely makes you nostalgic. But I can see why people because because I realized when researching that there there is like a there's a cult following for this. Yeah. And it's kind of this like forgotten nostalgia gem for people who did see it back when they were kids. Right. And I, I could pick up on a couple things like why a it's still remembered fondly by by some people today and b like why it maybe wasn't a huge success at the time too right um because in many ways this movie was sort of ahead of its time um which we can get into is sort of like a lot of the themes that are going on there but in other ways it's like it's also sort of clumsy and maybe isn't like perfect in its execution of these ideas like I, I sometimes when i think back about the 80s it seems like it's such a long time ago because that's when i was born there was definitely like people pushing the boundaries and and um, trying to talk about race and talk about social issues at the time. I, you know what I mean? So I, and when I say that things are ahead of their time, I don't want to like act like this stuff wasn't going on because it was and it has been for a long time, obviously. But in sci-fi in general, um, it feels to me like from the limited bit I know about sci-fi and what I've been studying through this podcast is this feels like it was ahead of its time, I guess. And, and I guess I'm just not hundred percent certain when I say that, but, mm-hmm. um, I get that, I get that feeling. Plus it was written in 79, not 85. So that's even mm-hmm. more important to think about. So it was actually a little older. So uh, a couple things I want to get out right here at the, at the beginning, I really could feel maybe the influence or maybe just the something that I have nostalgia for from from seeing so much of this kind of stuff but I whether it was the story or the sets or the costuming like all this stuff really felt like um, a long episode of Star Trek or like Mm. or like an a classic Doctor Who episode or something like that like it feels like the morality tales like built into it it's baked into it and then there's allegory and and like you were saying there is like sci-fi does have allegory usually almost i would say always um i mean you look at like things like the day the earth stood still or like godzilla like classic godzilla like this stuff is all like just straight up allegory for like what's going on during that during that time period and it's a way for people to i think cope with the things that are going on during that time and also um you know escape them in in certain ways so this i think very much so especially with the 1979 
um, being so fresh after Vietnam, I was getting a lot of Vietnam vibes, maybe like some, some like seeing somebody as, as an other and then yeah. realizing their people as well and coming back from the war and being changed and, and the people back home being feeling certain ways. I wasn't even thinking about Vietnam War. That's a good point. That would have been right around that time. Yeah, and absolutely uh, thinking about race and, 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 and sort of demonizing the enemy and right. seeing them as inhuman. And so, yeah, this is a heavily allegorical movie and, and, and story. And um, I think we're going to try and tackle this a little differently than we've done other combo projects in the past. I think we're going to kind of bounce back and forth between the two. We're going to talk a little bit about the novella, a little bit about the movie, maybe make some comparisons throughout, mostly because um, up until the third act, it's largely the same um, with some minor minor to middling differences throughout, um, which we can get into. But rather than go through the entire plot of the novella and then get into the film, which is going to be largely the same, that, that feels kind of redundant. So I think we're just going to bounce back and forth between both. But before we get into plot-heavy stuff and spoilers and all that, um, even though this movie's you know, obviously very old now, um, I think there might be some people who are checking out this episode curious, like, what is this film? I've never heard of it. Is it worth checking out for me if I have a you know, passing interest in, in old sci-fi cinema um, and stories? We also want to mention that this project was a listener commission. One of our one of our patrons, Stephen E, earned up enough yep. coins, put them towards this project on our jukebox, yeah. and we are covering this because he provided the coins necessary. Yeah, and this is a good example of the kind of stuff you can do with those tokens because I had no idea that this movie existed, and uh, he was able to commission it, and I had a lot of fun with it, So, uh, which we'll get into. But uh, yeah, shout out to Stephen. Hopefully you enjoy this coverage. Uh, thanks for for commissioning it. I was look, I was looking into Wolfgang Peterson's uh, filmography, and I feel like if you're a fan of these other movies, this this might be a, f- a film that you're that you're interested. So the film's directed by Wolfgang Peterson. He's he also directed The Neverending Story, mm. uh, which is like another classic '80s film. And that's something we could cover too one of these days. Yeah, that'd be Based fun. Based off a yeah. novel. Yeah, for sure. And that that like I was saying, like things that satellite this movie, I didn't even realize the enemy mine existed. But the never ending story was huge for me growing up. Like I remember watching that a lot when I was really young and being scarred by that scene with the with the pit, <laughs> the feel of the world and like the creatures and stuff. And you telling me that he did never ending story like totally lines up. Yeah, definitely. And actually, I found out that 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 pool where they originally where um, Davidge and, and uh, Jerry first meet, like kind of mm-hmm. where he's like looking over that that set there that like pawn set was used in in some never ending story shots really so they, like reuse that set <laughs> so the never funny. so never ending story came after this it was before oh it was before okay so they reused it for this one year before yeah reused it for enemy mine it, just to give you some other wolfgang peterson movies really quick just because i i feel like you're familiar okay um dos boot which was kind of his first one that that like kind of blew him up in the states i've heard of that i've never seen it yeah but the, the rest of these I think you'll have seen. Um, Outbreak, Air Force One, The Perfect Storm, Troy, and Poseidon. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think I've seen all of this. Yeah. So he's like, you know, he, he had a really hot streak in the States, but he, I mean, he's been directing since, you know, a long time ago, 1960s or 70s, I think. I just thought, I just think it's really interesting to track that. So so you're giving me back background on the movie. Let me give some background on the, on the story before we then give our, our thoughts on on uh, who should who should read it and who should watch it. So sure. the story that this was based off of was written by Barry uh, B. Longyear, and it was originally published in the September 1979 issue of Asimov's science fiction magazine. It was later collected in a 1998 uh, anthology where he expanded it largely in something called The Author's Cut. And this Author's Cut, I think, is about twice the length. Uh, we made the decision not to read that version and to read the original that was published in the magazine because that was the basis for the film. And we, and since we're we're looking at the adaptation, we wanted to go off of the material they had, not what they didn't have, obviously. When this story came out, it won the Hugo Award for Best Novella in 1980 and the Nebula for Best Novella in 1979. And uh, Barry B. Longyear won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. Um, and I believe all three of those things has only been done like in the same year since in uh, last year um, by Rebecca Roanhorse in, in 2018. So it had been a long time since somebody did all three. Wow. Uh, but he did it for this. 
Um, so this was a well-regarded story in the in the sci-fi community. You know what I mean? Like people mm-hmm. read this and liked it, and it was talked about, won awards, and got adapted. Um, and so now that we've kind of set the stage, what did you think of the novella? Let's start there. First of all, I didn't know what to think at all going into this project. Yeah. And I was kind of I, I, like, although I, I looked at the poster for the movie and I was like, OK, right. I was like, the, like, I kind of wanted to get like some some frame of reference. So I was like, looked at it and I was like, OK, I think I know what kind of movie this can be. Yeah. And you read it before you saw the movie? I read the short story first. Yeah. OK. I was surprised at how character driven it was. I was kind of expecting it to be more of like an actiony, but read more, maybe more like thriller ish. You know, with like something like maybe something along the lines of like Predator or something like that, where you're like, there's an there's an alien enemy and, and you guys are fighting and trying to figure a way out of there. I also didn't know what to make of the title, which I want to talk to you about, because there's some mm-hmm. other interesting details that go along with that. OK, yeah, that's actually I don't know which I don't know much about the title, so I'll be curious to hear that. I found the novella pretty moving in a surprising way. I, I there were times where I felt invested, you know, like deeply invested in this this survival story, um, and I was I was charmed by the relationship that formed between him and Jerry. I, in general, found the story, the novella, to be more emotionally uh, rewarding than I found the film to be. It's not to say I didn't have fun watching the film, um, but if I were to, depending on the person. And if, if you're if you're if you're looking for the more like emotionally connecting, in my opinion, the, the story that's going to connect you more emotionally, um, I would point you towards the novella mm-hmm. because I thought it was it was really effective at that. And I could see why it was well regarded at the time. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I definitely agree with that, too. The the yeah. the way that the the story plays out, like I said, in so much more of a character driven way. And we're getting to yeah. see the two sides understand each other instead of trying to kill each other constantly. Um, And the basic premise of this, by the way, which I think is, well, you know, for people who don't know, is is essentially um, a a human and a drac, which is the enemy of the humans, um, are fighting each other like two pilots, and they essentially blow each other out of the sky and both crash land on this planet and uh, are trying to kill each other on the ground outside of their ships, and then they have to work together to survive this alien landscape, and they slowly over time start to learn about each other's cultures and language and species. And let's leave it at that for now, and then we'll get more into it. But that's the premise. That's the setup. And um, both the novella and the film follow that. Uh, One of the things you you were talking about this story being or i guess the movie and story being ahead of its time and the allegories that were being drawn and just just things in general i was really um surprised at the end i think i you know i'm not an expert on this but and i think it was handled well just gender identity in this with with the alien yeah there was yeah it pronouns throughout right and i was surprised to see that in a in you know a story from like 1979 um yeah. especially with like you know the the growth i think we've seen in in society and the community at like be identifying gender politics and and or i guess lack thereof you know the spectrum yeah. of gender All, i think it was played for laughs in the in the movie a little bit but it was also you know handled pr- fairly well in the movie yeah i i agree i think the tone is subtly different in each version Mm-hmm. Um, now both of them have fun, you know, there's, there's the Mickey mouse thing, which we can get into more. Um, uh, well, I guess it's not a huge spoiler early on. Um, the, the Drac throws a insult at the human, uh, basically it calls Mickey mouse a dope, I think in the movie. And it's a little bit different in the book, but, um, because the, the Drac, uh, Jerry has heard that Mickey mouse is this like great leader or like a source of knowledge or wisdom, in the human culture and that it's a huge insult to to insult mickey mouse and then you know obviously david just just laughs thinks it's hilarious um and so there's moments of levity obviously in both but i would say in general yes the the film has is is lighter for the most part um until at times it gets weirdly dark um Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's just something we can talk about um and uh I don't know. I, I I guess it just depends on what you're looking for. 
Um, but in a way, it feels like the novella takes itself more seriously, whereas the movie's kind of having more fun with it. Yeah, I think that's correct, especially with it being kind of this this outlier of a of a sci-fi film, I feel like for the 80s, because it is very like the aliens aren't like something you would see in Alien or something like that that was coming yeah. out around the same time. Like they're not like creatures to they're almost human. They're just like slightly different in in race, really. Yeah, it's yeah, and it's fascinating to think about. I mean, there's there's lots of video essays and and things that have been written about what aliens mean in our in our media, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, they can mean a million different things, and often um, how humanized they are will indicate to you how much you should be trying to empathize with them. And you know, you see, yeah, you see something like Alien, 1979's Alien. Um, which is obviously a horrific monster meant to frighten us, barely recognizably humanoid in any way. Um, whereas then you have like E.T., which is which has these huge expressive eyes and um, has like a, almost an old man face when you look at it and is supposed to be kind of cute. And even though it is alien, it's, you're supposed to connect with it emotionally. And then, um, yeah, you have something like this uh, where obviously it... Um, it's kind of an in-between, I guess, because it's it's they did a pretty good job of making it look pretty alien and with like these kind of expanding sacks on the face and the alien design overall was very humanoid and very recognizable, too, that you're supposed to say, OK, not that different, different, but not that different. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, I also kind of was thinking about like, I wonder how problematic it can be seen just looking at this story and seeing the um, because I mean, I think there's very clear like race relation things going on. Absolutely. Um, I wonder how problematic that the, the line that they're towing is with it. Like, you know, they're kind of poking fun at the other cultures sometimes. And then they're also like, you know, is that the artists making a commentary on how they feel about another culture that they don't understand or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't, I think that overall it was fun and, it, and I had a good time with it for sure. But I just it was, it was something I was actively thinking about. Yeah. And, and I think early on I said something about how I felt like at times it was clumsy mm-hmm. and, um, and it feels, it feels more well-intentioned than necessarily well-executed. Right. Um, and, and yeah, because ultimately when you start to think about it, the idea of like, I mean like the actor who plays Jerry is a black man. Right. And a lot of the Drax are played by black people. And obviously there's a strong allegory being made here. Um, but you could, I think rightfully so these days you look at that and roll your eyes and say like, why can't we just talk about actual black people? Why do we have to make them an alien and tell an allegory about it so that we can distance ourselves enough from it to recognize that this is like a real problem we deal with. And you rightfully can look at all the human characters. I, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say all, cause I'm not hundred percent certain, but the vast majority of human characters we see are all white people. So what's going on here? Like, it feels like maybe not good enough, like that kind of stuff. And if this movie came out today, I absolutely think that's incredibly valid. Um, and maybe is valid for this movie at the time as well. But, um, just looking back at like where sci-fi was, it feels like, like I said, clumsy, well-intentioned. And I tend to want to give it a pass because I can see that what it's trying to do and it's trying to do things that feel um, valuable and or have value and are important, I think. Right. And I think that that's that we've kind of said that about other projects before, Um, like just their their heart being in the right place. But with that, let's um, let's kind of answer the question we set up a long time ago. Who who do you think should see this? I I was mentioning, you know, people who are fans of like the never ending story. Other movies that come to mind are like uh, Willow or like the Goonies, like a lot of those like 80s films that are like uh, a kid can enjoy um i think an adult can get some enjoyment out of it for sure um if you if you love like 80s movies like for the fact that they're yes. 80s movies i think you'd be into this movie i agree with that I, I i don't think anyone should feel like in my opinion i don't feel like uh you you're missing out if you haven't seen this movie you gotta go watch it no i wouldn't say that um we'll, we'll get into it but there's a lot there's a lot of cheese a lot of things that don't really hold up and and while this movie was perhaps socially progressive in a lot of ways, um, I don't think it was scientifically very <laughs> um, astute. It was it played fast and loose with a lot of things. 
Um, you know, maybe maybe more so in the film probably than than in the in the novella itself. But it doesn't feel like a very science um, realistic kind of thing. So if that's what you like in your sci-fi, you're going to be disappointed by this, um, which we can get into. But yeah, so I guess if we saying all that, if you're interested and in, in, you know, maybe you're a big fan of um, Dennis Quaid, um, then then you could check it out. Def, young Dennis Quaid, giant Dennis Quaid smile, you know, the usual thing you get from him. It, 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 I had fun with it, you know, and the character, right. the creature design of of these little these little beings on the planet itself were fun. I'm right there with you. I'm I'm glad that I've seen this movie because I, you know, I yeah. wasn't even familiar before, and I'm really glad that I've seen it now um, because it is just like that other movie in my repertoire now that I can that I can pull and think about because they went for it, like they they did it with the landscapes and and you know the the spaceships and and a lot of like the costuming and like you said, the creature design is I think really cool. The, the like the prosthetics that are like that are breathing and and the mm-hmm. mouth. The one of the hardest things I feel like in in monster movies or aliens or whatever anything you're doing with prosthetics is to like make the mouth look interesting or different than just a human mouth and they had this sort of like the you could see where the actor's mouth actually was but the prosthetics around it made it look like it was like a secondary mouth or something and i thought that looked really cool when when they were talking agreed just fun i think just fun okay uh so there you have it if you have if you're not familiar with enemy mind there's your your sort of primer on it but now we're going to get into like full spoilers for for both uh novella and film so in both the novella and in the movie they crash land on this planet, and they are immediately faced with th- threatening situations. In the novella, it's these tidal forces, these waves that are crashing and throwing them around. In the movie, it appears to be uh, a meteor, meteor shower, shower <laughs> which is hilariously done. By, like, it looks like it's just dropping flares or something from off, uh, you know, uh, above camera. Um, some of the worst meteor effects, honestly. <laughs> They're they're pretty bad, but um, hilarious in in their own and way, yet, right? And yet still fun, like still like. And then oh, the meteors. idea, yeah, and then the idea that they're gonna hide from them by like building a a, a little hut and then getting inside of it, and then that's gonna protect you from meteors, <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's like it's completely ridiculous. The shells. They're drinking water. They're eating things. They're breathing. All this stuff on this planet with no thought to whether or not it's poisonous or if the air is breathable or if the water is actually water, there's no tests. He just assumes that it is. Um, well, I mean, the alternative is death anyway, right? I guess just starving. Yeah. So, so he's going for it and he figured out, it was I guess right. so. Uh, it, it felt in keeping with the, the tradition of like 50s sci-fi. Now I haven't seen a lot of that, but I know that it was very much like they land on a planet and they walk around with their helmets off and talk to aliens and it's fine because like no one really knew a lot about planetary science or at least if they did it didn't make it into the movie and that's kind of how it felt here too like mm-hmm. just go with it it's all fine yeah the the shells i i love that they like they there's these uh, but the creatures by the way also the creatures are pretty cool and and i could also kind of see the influence of star wars with this being a 1985 yeah. film somewhat you know close to when star wars comes out the, the creature that comes out of the comes out of like the little sand trap the creature that's crawling yeah. on, the, on the ground and everything it's very like star wars creaturey uh yep the the shells so they start building the hut out of shells and meteor proof uh, shells the meteor proof <laughs> shells it's so funny because it's not about it doesn't i guess they are technically this is like small meteors from a small small meteor shower but like heaven forbid a big meteor comes along that's not stopping anything man <laughs> it makes no sense and it's and then I, so i get the idea that like maybe the the novella's title stuff is probably going to be way too expensive right to try and figure out a way to simulate that on screen it'd be a nightmare yeah. especially for back then yeah which also made me think of interstellar were you thinking of interstellar when you read the novella uh no i didn't actually that's a good point though yeah the 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 title forces of the the black hole and interstellar pulling on that one planet that's a good point they have like Um, a couple like however much time in between each wave or whatever and then you know it's like impending doom with like massive tidal waves yeah i mean tidal waves are are terrifying um and i could totally see that i don't know like it worked it worked for me because i was picturing the planet they were on as being a lot more earth-like you know with like some differences but Maybe, uh, I mean, you have snakes. It's like the one creature we really talk about in the novella and not really much of anything else. And these tidal pools, there's rain. 
and they they have they want to get into shelter for more like normal reasons like to stay out of the elements <laughs> and to um they have to get above a certain level to avoid the the uh, tidal wave so they end up going to another island and all this stuff but that all kind of gets done away with in favor of the meteor shower threat <laughs> in the movie um which is on the surface kind of silly but um it leads to some of the same kind of situations of them having to bond over their kind of butt heads early and then bond over trying to survive right and ultimately this is this is a lot a large part of the story is about survival the actual terrain they were on i thought was pretty pretty cool looking like it's clear that they went to locations to shoot and um i think that's a big deal because otherwise it would have just all looked like you know the, the shots that you could tell they were on a set if the entire movie was like yeah. that it would have really felt very star trek and uh i i was looking into it a little bit and this this brings up a couple points here originally there was another director who was on this film and uh, I guess the newly appointed 20th Century Fox production head and producer, Lawrence Gordon, greenlit this film again after after hiring Wolfgang Peterson. Uh, and Wolfgang Peterson wanted to move it to his native country of West Germany. And uh, so they shot a lot of it in West Germany. Uh, and these there's like a there's like a film museum in Munich now where a lot of a lot of these uh, like some of the sets and, and costumes and stuff are still kind of shown there today as like an exhibit. So I just thought this was funny that yeah. like, you know, West Germany has, has enemy mine memorabilia on, on display if you wanted to go check that out. And that reminds me a little bit, we kind of glossed over some of the intro stuff where there was actually some interesting sort of like stations uh, sets. You got these, uh, the, 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 the battles in space, definitely very Star Wars reminiscent or maybe Battlestar Galactica, like that kind of, uh, kind of stuff. Um, you know, you got your regular, like, you know, laser sounds and space and like all this stuff that doesn't really hold up with science, but very, very nostalgic kind of feeling. I, I don't know. I thought I thought a lot of those sets were like surprisingly good. Um, and, I, and I did. I remember I, did, I, I didn't do a lot of research, but I looked into it and, and I saw somewhere that they spent 40 million dollars on this movie. Yeah. Um, which I was kind of shocked to see that because I was like, where did they spend that money? And then I realized it must have been for a lot of these like station sets because that's where it looked like a lot of the money was put to me. Well, I think it also goes back to what I was just talking about with the firing of the original director. They had already they had already shot some, and then Wolfgang oh. Peterson decided to use none of that and start start the filming all over again on its own. So that okay. could potentially have inflated the the budget a little bit. Yeah, and I saw that it made it made like one point nine million. <laughs> in no, theaters. no, no. Well, well, I looked at I looked to make sure, but um, it made twelve million total domestically. It made it made one point one point six opening weekend. Opening weekend, yeah. Yeah, you had to be. There were some people uh, pretty upset. I mean, even twelve million is still a lot less than forty. Right. So when yeah. you spend forty million dollars on a movie and it makes one point nine million opening weekend or whatever, like you're pretty worried. <laughs> you're like, uh, fuck, what have we done? Hey, but so, we're still talking about it today. We are at least. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many other people are. I did just randomly. Uh, so there is a moment in the novella where David remembers the lines, the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out. Did you catch that? I didn't know. Are you serious? Yes, he does. He, he's like, he's thinking about, um, I think like funerals, maybe, maybe, maybe this is when, when Jerry dies, he's mm -hmm. thinking about funerals back at home and he thinks of the worms crawl in the worm, the worms crawl out. And I was like, Oh my God, we just covered scary stories to tell in the dark, the hearse song. That's, you know, the, the start of it. No, not the start of it. That's part of it. I don't know. I just thought that was funny, man, how things connect like in that weird way. Right. That is so weird. The, and like that just goes to show you that like like we talked about last week, that those stories were like, you know, they were embedded in like society because that was 1979. Yeah. I'm assuming guess, that's referencing the song, right? It has to be from the book. Um, that was the book. The book wasn't even out yet. No, pro no, the book wasn't out yet. It right. Just so it's been referencing just the, the folklore song. song. Exactly. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, anyway, so that kind of skipped ahead a little bit, but um, the let's, let's focus on the movie. We get the the sand trap, the quicksand, the the tentacle, and I was shocked by how bloody that scene became, mm -hmm. and um, how how frightening that actually was when the creature came out. And like I was I was I was impressed with this creature design was was pretty astounding. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, I was I was pretty shocked about it. I was like, God, they, they really went in with the creatures and like the prosthetics and everything looks good. Uh, so you're talking about when he they've already started to really like uh, 
try to understand each other, teaching each other their languages, um, some little tidbits about their culture here and there. And so, yeah, he falls into the sand trap and he starts calling out for Jerry to help him. David, yeah, yeah. Yeah, David falls into, and he's calling for Jerry to, to, uh, and he comes over like a hero, like Han Solo with the, with the Sarlacc pit in, in Star Wars. And they're like, and like literally shoots, shoots the thing off his leg. And it really was just like the Sarlacc pit, which, uh, Star Wars and and sci-fi. I'm sure that at this at this point they were like, we got to do some Star Wars stuff. Absolutely, and 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 that was the the shells that they found that are meteorite proof. Um, but that is a scene that doesn't exist in the novella. Um, I think in the novella it's more uh, escaping a wave together, and and, and I think uh, Jerry puts him inside of his like his little capsule and is able to save him that way. Regardless, D- uh, Jerry saves his life. And that's like kind of an important moment. Um, and I, I just like how, to me, the the book was also very focused on language and how it changed over time as they started to be able to speak each other's languages mm-hmm. um, and understand each other's cultures. And there was a lot of like change in the, like you said, a character study in a way. There was a lot of change in the narrator of the story in Davidge and how he talked about jerry and how he talked about the culture and it went from like these early on using slurs and 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 being very dismissive to being very understanding and to being proud of what he understood about its culture and using that to connect with us um and show us the understanding that this this character is is gaining through through uh cohabitating this planet um that that stuff is all really cool it feels classic to me but um i had never actually read this kind of story and and I appreciated it. So we talked about it a little bit before, but this idea of like asexuality or like reproducing, uh, like self-reproducing uh, is brought up in both both versions of the story. And I wanted to. What, did you think that one handled it more than the other? One handled well, it I mean, better. In general, I think the novella handled it better. Um, I think there, like you said, there were at times where it felt kind of like it was being played more for laughs in the movie. But honestly, like that's some of the best stuff of the movie. So I don't want to totally downplay it. And if you've only seen the movie and haven't read the novella, which I think a lot of people, that's probably the case. Um, that's probably the thing you like about this movie, right? Like a lot of people probably really like the way it push, it challenges you right. um, with this, with this hermaphrodite character who is able to have a child asexually, like you said, and um, that it's challenges, it challenges David. And he has to face his own preconceptions. And then, of course, Jerry dies during childbirth. And in what was a surprising turn um, mm-hmm. in, in both the in, in both the book and the movie. Now, I read it first in the book, so it was more surprising to me there. But I was surprised. You know, I thought this was leading to a path of of like eventually they're going to be rescued. And then what's it going to look like now that they're best buds? Um, right. But instead, Jerry dies. And all of a sudden, David has to raise its child and. Uh, that is that was a surprising turn and a touching one. And I like how David at first was like, I was friends with your parent. I wasn't friends. You know, I, I have no attachment to you. Right. And he just wants to, you know, but then, of course, he, he comes around. There was a dark moment where he contemplated killing the baby as well, right? Yeah. Like there was like a... Yeah, lifted a stone, I think, and, and all this, yeah. So, yeah, just and, this... And, and it, it, you know, you can you can understand that too. It's like It's like... It, it was one thing with Jerry when they were both able to work together to survive. Now, now he is at a disadvantage because he has to take care of a child, a, a baby, yeah. whilst also surviving. Um, and, and, you know, that Which just he knows goes nothing to show, about. Exactly. And it goes to show the bond that he shares with this person who's no longer there of a different, yeah. you know, like alien. There's an alien race to each other. Um, and I so, found that really touching. And it's something that I think was kind of omitted from the film. If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, rem- remind me if I'm wrong, but he would repeatedly go to Jerry's grave and talk to it and, and talk to it about, about its child. And, and, and really it was like going to an old friend and just catching up. And, and I found that all really touching like that, that that was how strong their bond was. Right. Yeah. And I think we don't get as much of that in the movie. If I'm, if I'm not remembering incorrectly. At one point, he did, he did, and he spoke to it at the grave, and I think that that was really the only, like, kind of reference to that happening in the book, in the film. Yeah. Um, you know, 
they're trying to keep it under you know two hours i'm sure so they were trying to keep yeah. keep the plot moving so that was probably their one moment to kind of show like him talking to to his deceased friend and the payoff of that in the in the book i thought was good and that was the uh zamich the, the the child um going up and removing the rocks to find the hand of jerry and then saying i needed to see that my parent was a person and not just a pile of stones. This meant nothing to me up until now. Right. And I thought that was a cool moment because up until that point, like uh, David, who who uh, is you know called Uncle, is the only other person that Zamich has ever interacted with. And the idea of this uh, other Drac, who is its true parent, um, was a challenging one. And and you could have spent a lot of time dealing with this, but actually the novella moves through it pretty quickly, efficiently, I would say. And yet still engaging with it. And, and we get like talks of philosophy. There's some interesting kind of banter back and forth about that. And and it's to show that this child is precocious, growing fast, um, mentally growing fast as well. That is also another point where it diverges, right? Because the Zamich in the film never really gets above, I would say, like young child age. Mm-hmm. in a physical appearance right. whereas zamich in the in the in the novella goes far beyond that well yeah zamich ends up being like larger than than uh Dav- davage like and larger like, than jerry was too right and so yeah you know that i guess the ending would have had to be a lot different would or or more the same because it already is a lot different so we should we should yeah. talk about where this where it starts to diverge do you are there any scenes that you definitely want to talk about with uh, David, Davich and, and Jerry together. Yeah. So, uh, they're in the cave and, uh, I, oh, there, there was the football moment in the movie, mm-hmm. which was kind of funny. It felt kind of odd. Like it felt like it didn't fit. It felt like kind of shoehorned in there, um, in a way. And, and also kind of odd because like sci-fi fans in the eighties are definitely not your target audience for, football references <laughs> right um I, I can't imagine um obviously there's there there's exceptions to that and i think nowadays there's you know there's there's a lot of that um but at the time i was like how many like how many people who are watching this movie are glad to see a football reference <laughs> but that all being said i thought it was pretty cute and it, and it was it was a, a fun moment um but that also re- reminds me a little bit of the, the, the difference in the characters um I found Davidge in the when his first name's Willis, Willis Davidge in the in the in the book to be a more likable character in general. Um, he felt more empathetic. He felt maybe not as much of an asshole at the beginning mm-hmm. as he was in the film. But all that being said, I still liked him in the film, and I still I still think it was done for a reason. It was to show the change, right. and especially I think that, once he had changed, you know, yeah, you like him more. I think they put the work in in the beginning to really make you see like this guy is a piece of shit towards this other race. Uh, yeah. Like David, like David, all he has is the only place he has to go with the relationship is up. And so, you know, like how far the, the gap is between those two things. Um, the scenes in both the, the book and the movie that kind of meant the most to me was this passing on of like their their cultures, like morality or like, yeah, the the way that. Uh, it was like a sacred bond to pass from student to from teacher to student and um, passing on of the Talman and really just uh, the the lineage was it was a big deal. And I think it has a better payoff in, in the novella. I really felt I like that was a that was a powerful payoff in the in the novella um, and set up. I think it was set up better, too, in the book, because in the novella, uh, David overhears it reciting its heritage and he requests, I think can you teach can you teach that to me and it says like i only later learned that this was a huge honor and uh you know the drac was obviously you know jerry was excited to tell to to teach him its lineage and uh so that was i think like a more powerful moment than what we got in the film which was instead uh jerry saying i'm going to teach you this it's an honor I'm doing doing for you, right. and uh, David being kind of resistant, but then kind of relenting and going, "All right, go ahead." And and this, no. so that's just a very different dynamic. Dynamic, right? You know? And and I will say that in the in the story, the way that it's presented is, they mention it and they say, "All right, this you're going to learn this," and then in a in a short period of time, we're told that 
Stevich was able to learn this. And I think that there is that moment in the movie where he says that he's going to be reciting it all winter in order to comfort Jerry. Um, and so it kind of made more sense that like he was learning it over a winter versus like however much time it was in the novella. That was one thing that I think that they did like kind of uh, explain the idea that he would he would actually know it all. But then we never really we don't even see him recite it at the end of the film. Right. Yeah. You just right. hear that he it's says not. it later to the council or whatever. So so it sounds like we really need to talk about the divergence of this story because right. the novella and the and the movie end very differently. So let's go ahead and talk about how the novella ends and we can kind of engage with that and then we'll move on and talk about the film and how it ends. Right. So in the novella, they decide that they're going to go after this ship they see fly and land somewhere or they think it lands somewhere and they're like, we're going to go that direction. We're going to try and, you know, find your people. Um, David just is, is, is saying to the Drac or, or my people, whoever it is. And we're going to, we're going to get off this, this, island we can't just live here forever and so they go together on this journey and along the journey david falls into a hole and breaks his leg and uh tells tells zamis to go ahead without him and well no it was send jerry ba- and point, send right? back oh, no, the very very end no zamich yeah at the right, end right. yeah yeah is so it, Zamich, by the way, is it, I think, is it, I think, isn't it Zamis? Zamis. 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 Yeah, sorry, yeah. I'm saying Zamich, but it's Zamis, you're right. So it tells Zamis to go ahead without him and to send back help. Zamis says, okay, I'll, I'll do that, and leaves. And then, then it's like crazy because, because he's like uh, blacking David gets, out. David's just blacking out. Then he gets picked up and he wakes up in like a medical bay. And I don't know, help me, help me fill this in. So he, he's, Brought back to human society, told like, oh, I don't know what happened to to Zam to Zamis. If you were with a Drac, it's with the Dracs now. Who knows? Right, and they were talking down about about their ra- like the Drac race and oh yeah, immediately hears- and talking about like like you, you shouldn't associate with that kind of person with them them anyway. Yeah. Even though the war's over, like still fuck them. Yeah, and this gets very on the nose with its allegory, um, right. where it's like it's it's kind of like you cannot. He really, he literally hears uh, the term "dragger," I think, which is clearly very loaded and and sort of supposed to evoke another term, and and I think it's even spelled out. And uh, after that, even after that direct thing, like it's like then further laid out, like it reminded me of these other slurs, and he li- and you know he lists them, right. um, and and I that was where I was kind of I was kind of wishing it was a little more subtle, just because. And sometimes naming things so specifically can almost take away some of the power of the story, in my opinion, because right. it doesn't leave as much room for interpretation. Um, and it can feel more like a lesson is being taught to you, which no one really wants to feel that way. Right. Um, so just in my opinion, that's one of the places where the, where the novella sort of takes a wrong step, and I think. But regardless, this winds up in... Um, he he uh david lives for a few years i think or definitely a long time and then he goes back home to earth to visit his parents and when he's going home he has this realization that like this doesn't feel right to him this doesn't feel like home and so he sets off on a journey to go to the drac home world and that takes a while <laughs> well well the the, the way that, that this is all played out is that he's memorized the talman like he's he remembers like their like the heritage he understands their culture he understands like everything that's being said in their basically the drac bible and he and then he goes yeah. to he goes to a publisher and is like here this is my manuscript for for this uh for basically the drac's like philosophy and like there's people who would be interested in this because like you know the war was brought about because of the different translation in, the differences in ideology yeah sorry it's also the it's it's translated from drac so nobody other than him could have done that and yeah. uh you know the publisher is all smug about it and like who wants to read this and i'm not going to give you the money he wants and he wants this specific amount of money because he wants to use it to to travel to the drac home world and then also potentially use some of that money was what i was inferring to start kind of this new society to with uh hmm. this new society of of Davidge and Zamis, you know, having like an integrated world with with everybody, yeah. you know, everybody. That's definitely sub- subtext, if so, because I did not pick up on that. But you, you might be right. Um, regardless, he is able to take a journey to the Drac home world, where he finally is able to meet uh, the 
parent of Jerry and the family, which is apparently a very powerful family. And he's dismissed at first, but then when he offers to recite the lineage of the family, uh, he's allowed to do so. And then there's that's the payoff moment where he recites this like 200 year old or something uh, lineage with all these different generations, 200 generations old. Um, and by the time he's done, like everyone there is like taking a knee and like is in awe of his, yeah. yeah, his ability to do this. And that's a cool payoff for that moment. Yeah. And another important uh, kind of facet of that is that because this is a powerful family with Jerry passing away, that's the ending of their powerful family. They, and they yeah. don't believe that Jerry has done. passed on the lineage. And so they think that it's all for nothing and it's all ended at this point. And, you know, he's bringing up Zamus and saying that Zamus is the offspring of Jerry. And yet uh, these people are like, no, you're, you're trying to sully our name. Get out of here. And then, yeah, that's, yeah. so that's when the payoff comes through. He says all of this and then he, he they're that's all the on proof. his side at that point. And he's able to convince them to all go figure out what's going on. Where is Zamus? Because he's kind of missing. And so Zamus, it's they, they go searching for Zamus and they find out that essentially Zamus has been sent to a rehabilitation center where they're doing some sort of forcible and this reminds me of like the really terrible um stuff that goes that used to go on and still somewhat goes on today where people were like being medically treated for being homosexual right like that kind of stuff exactly and using like electroshock therapy and stuff like that and it's essentially that for being a human lover and they and zamis was was considered too shameful to be brought home because of its affection for humans and so it was, it's in this place where it's being treated and they have to go in and like threaten people and and just to get Zamus out of there and they finally do Zamus at first doesn't even remember Davidge but then uh, eventually comes around and does have some memories and then the novella ends pretty quickly after that with sort of a denouement of they go back to the original alien planet to form a colony, kind of like you said, um, there where where they can sort of live in harmony. But then David actually goes out to live in the cave, the original cave, and he is sent the offspring of Zamus to raise. And, and he becomes kind of like an elder, like a vill- like a village elder or something, to pass mm-hmm. on this this wisdom. And he lives essentially as a hermit. And um, I don't know. The war is technically over in the novella, but it doesn't seem like there's a huge amount of like racial progress being made between humans and Drac. And well, from what my estimation of it, so I didn't I didn't really read it that way. What I was okay. reading was they wanted to duplicate the experience of what of what Jerry and Zamis went through in order yeah. to kind of continue that that um legacy or continue whatever whatever happened whatever the relationship that was formed there they want that to continue in the species of drac like going forward so they want like human like them to be born into human companions kind of no and uh, i agree I, I i think that was the goal i just it was i think it's just zamus zamus's family line jerry's family line that went there and they're kind of social outcasts from the drac as well Okay. So I guess like the the actual effectiveness of this, I don't know, but I do believe that it was the goal. Right. I, I, yeah. And I don't know. I kind of felt like that's that that like hopefully other humans would come and join the Drac there as well. And it would become like, you know, like I was saying, like integrated both both races. But yeah, maybe that's maybe. just me drawing parallels or drawing drawing conclusions. Let's I, I think we've basically completely covered the, the novella at this point. I want to jump yeah. back. So what, what, to, what was your thoughts on it before we before we jump back to the film? Like what was your thoughts on the way the novella ended? I was I, I, like you've said before. I was pretty surprised at the amount of the emotion that there was in this story. I, I did get invested, and I did yeah. you know I cared about both both of the main characters, and I cared about uh, David's growth for sure. I was I was definitely like, oh man, I'm I'm really happy to see like everything, yeah. you know, developing and turning out this way. And it's kind of like putting you know your own like however you perceive the world, like hoping that that like this kind of stuff always wins out, and that, like race relations can always get better, and and you know. That kind of thing. But it was kind of a tragic end for him, though, that he's essentially alone with, you know, the occasional mentor, uh, mentee that gets sent to him in this cave. And, and seems like he doesn't really feel like he has a place anymore. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I guess there was some tragedy there. And then and then the idea that, like, um, David and Zamis didn't have this, like, 
at least we didn't read about this long relationship between the two of them. And it felt, I don't know, like, cause at the end, I think Zamus is like staying in the colony and not coming out to the cave. And he, David just saying like, Hey, uh, Zamus should come out here and visit me sometime. So I don't know. Like it, it felt like that, that wasn't even ever, they never really got that bond back. I was, I didn't, I feel like I got a, set of, a happier, a happier ending out of this. I thought okay. for some reason I didn't, I didn't take it as like, oh, he hasn't seen Zamus in such a long time. I took it as him being like, it's a regular thing for Zamus to come over here, so tell him to come see me sometime. Like, as in like, yeah, it's something that that is happening consistently. But yeah, I, I don't know. And then, and then, yeah, I think it was. It, I don't think that he felt as much like an outcast as it was him making the decision to just say like, this is this is important enough to dedicate my life to. Like him saying like this, like the continued coexistence of the species is 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 a worthy cause for me to just uh focus on only that or something i don't know i kind of just saw it as a little bit happier but i can definitely see where yeah. you're coming from i think it's both you know and it's maybe it depends on like how you feel on that day when you read it right. <laughs> what you'll focus more on but you're right let's bounce back to the movie now because it's way different <laughs> right now this gets so back i just to... did a lot i did a long time kind of explaining everything that happened in the novella so i'm gonna put it on you you're gonna you're gonna recount the ending of this movie Okay, so this goes back to what I was mentioning with the title before. The, uh, the so I was confused by the title, "Enemy Mine." It's like it's like "Enemy of Mine," "Enemy." You know what I mean? It brings to, like, are you saying like because that's that's I think clearly the as far as how it's written, I think that that's what you're you're led to believe is "Enemy Mine," "Enemy of Mine" kind of thing. Um, yeah. Now I I read that author Barry Longyear reported at a convention that the studio insisted on adding a sub subplot involving a mine, thinking the audience would not realize that the mine in the title was possessive, as in my enemy, rather than an object. Yeah. So they literally yeah. took and made a mine where they had yep. dra- them working in a mine. I don't even as know if they mentioned labor. as slave labor, which to again the scavengers, which we haven't talked about yet. But yeah, yeah so, so an additional thing they added was the scavengers. That that's kind of where the 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 stories diverge. So yeah, David goes on like a quest to just say like we got if we don't if we don't go searching, we're never going to get out of here. We're just going to stay here forever. And at this point, he doesn't realize that Jerry is pregnant. That's why it's not interested in in traveling and and going exploring and things. So he goes out, uh, finds out that there are people of his race humans who are killing drax uh that enslaving are just them enslaving them and he finds like dead bodies and so he's he's like frightened by this and he's like oh god i gotta go back and make sure jerry's okay gets back that's when jerry reveals that it's pregnant and uh you know things play out from there kind of in the same way zamus is born uh yeah. he passes jerry passes away zamus basically gets curious about wanting to see a drac right isn't that isn't that what leads Zamus to go and investigate? Yeah, so so the relationship is built there again uh, in the same way da- Davinch is raising Zamus and Zamus, yeah, eventually is is like goes exploring uh, when it's grown up a little bit. It's not a baby anymore. It's more of like a toddler or maybe a young child goes out young exploring. Child, say, yeah. yeah, it goes out exploring and then runs into some of these scavengers and the scavengers are attacking it and then Davinch and one of them it. is a former replicant from Blade Runner, right? Isn't that yeah. isn't that one guy? Yeah, he was like the so. first replicant that we see. I think so. I yeah. say it is. Yeah, I the didn't look at that. looked so much like Steven Dorff that I thought it was him too, and then I was like, "There's no way," because this movie came out in '85. He would have been way too young, but he looked a lot like Steven Dorff, the other thug that he encounters, the other raider. David shows up, saves the day, shoots this guy through the throat with an arrow. It's pretty badass. <laughs> um, yeah. They they go back to random brutality in this movie at yep. times. Yeah, they go they go back and this is like he, he's shot also at that point he's shot and like falls into like a pit somewhere off to the side and yeah. this is again kind of the same scenario he wakes up well and the ra- the raider takes Zamus and, and leaves and right. he's left for dead right and so Zamus has been taken David to the scavenger camp or whatever David wakes up in a kind of like a what would you call it. I think it's the same like station, like space station that he was on before. I think, right? Or but they're like, ship but they're like something. incinerating. They're they're burning bodies. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Like like he's no, he's about I to. I think be... I thought they were just like ejecting them into space. <laughs> oh maybe. Didn't we see is... like a, didn't we see like a, a wreath floating through space? 
when yeah, we first start right. coming up to yeah i think, I think they're right. just and it's actually kind of like a darkly comical and i think it's supposed to be moment mm-hmm. of like they're playing a recording of whatever like song. religious appropriate song is available and then like the, the one body comes up and it's agnostic so they're like no song and they just eject it right. um but each time it also gets ejected with a wreath that is in like a stack and just gets like auto sent mm-hmm. so i don't know that's a, it, it felt almost like it was belonged in a different movie but it was it was enjoyable i guess <laughs> He goes crazy. I think at that point he does go to a medical facility and they like fix him yeah, up. Yeah, well, so so they think he's a dead body, but then they like open it up and they go to take the the Talman thing from around from around his neck and he wakes up and shows that he's alive. Right. Yeah. Anyway, and then he goes and gets treated. Gets treated, gets a good shave, gets a haircut. So he's yeah. like kind of back to his classic look from the beginning. Uh, and then he eventually is just like, I'm going down to back to the planet and forces yep. his way onto a ship. Uh, blast through the ship potentially killing thousands of people i don't know how their <laughs> yeah. how their systems would handle that after the wall's been blown yeah. out of this sh- this the uh space station uh don't worry about it <laughs> he flies down to the planet and uh gets to the the camp goes on a one-man stealth mission into the mine yeah the enemy mine if you will <laughs> he gets into the enemy yeah. mine and uh i just can't believe that they did that i can't believe because i was thinking during during the the while i was watching it i was like do they really put a mine in this movie called Enemy Mine? And uh, and then I found that that he mentioned that at a convention later, and I just think it's so funny. It's so funny. And you know what this re- re- like strongly reminded me? What's of? that? 1984's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. <laughs> okay, you kind of see it, yeah. The, yeah, the- with the mine carts and the fight, the fight amongst the I don't know the moving parts and everything, and I don't know there was a there's a guy with a whip. Yeah, the guy. One guy gets thrown into like the the thing that like crushes him, and like yeah, it's our rock crusher. That's a pretty brutal moment, right? Like somebody said, there's moments of like some like fairly brutal violence, and do you, this was before PG thirteen was a thing, I believe. Um, but w- were they still doing like rated R versus PG at the time? I, I don't really remember. And and if so, what was this movie rated? I don't know if this was before PG thirteen. I'm gonna have to look and check. Because didn't PG-13 basically come out with um, Jurassic Park? Isn't that what we talked about? Or am I completely misremembering? The first thing that pops up is July 1st, 1984, PG-13 was rele- was introduced uh, for 1984's John Milius war film, Red Dawn. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I, Interesting. I thought a- that was a Spielberg thing. I thought that was it was like a connected Spielberg that it. I also just found something that says Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom created PG-13 rating, so... Maybe there's conflicting reports. That's what I heard. That's what I had heard. Okay, so I got the movie wrong. I thought it was Jurassic Park, but it was earlier than that. It was Temple of Doom. That's funny, which made me think of this movie. But um, I'm seeing conflicting reports. I'm seeing, I've seen multiple things say Red Dawn and some other things say, uh, looking back at the two movies that made PG-13, hold on. Temple of Doom. I'm seeing Temple of Doom and, and Gremlin, Gremlins here. So yeah, sometime yeah. somewhere in there, the rating system was being like retrofitted. Okay, and I'm seeing that this movie is rated PG-13, although I don't know if it was at the time or if that happened later. But this this was a PG-13 movie. So yeah, but like like you know something like Spaceballs is one that I always look at that's like rated PG, I think. And it's like there's no way that that should be rated PG. I've actually never watched all of Spaceballs. I've seen clips. But I've really? never seen the whole thing. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a classic Mel Brooks comedy. I think you'd like it. <laughs> so so tell us what happens at the mine. So in the mine, he finds Zamus eventually. After, after killing, he kills a couple dudes. After killing people, <laughs> yeah. Well, is it before... Actually, but even before that, he's in the mine and kills some people in order and kind of meets with the other Drac who are like enslaved yeah. there. And they they kind of say like, Zamus has told us about you. We know that you're on our side. Let's get you're the, the out uncle. Here. You're yeah. the uncle. And so he he eventually finds Zamus and Zamus is like a limp body. and In the uh, floor, like in a floor prison of some kind. And yeah, yeah it's pretty dark. And uh, but, then the guy who... His brother, he the shot super, the arrow through. Yeah, the poorly developed villain of this movie shows up. He's got a, he's got a scratch on his face now, so we remember who he is that, that Zamus gave him. Yep, yeah. and he's like he's like holding a rag doll. You can clearly see that it's a dummy that he's like wielding <laughs> yeah, as Zamus. running around with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, he's up on top. Of, he's like talking about how he's going to kill Zamus and and um, this this fight is so bonkers in so many ways. And I don't know. It, this guy is I feel like he plays this sort of 80s villain in like every movie he's in. Mm-hmm. Um and then yeah, it, it they just have this elaborate 
I don't know. They like go in fight. He's like he's like trying to put the limp like like dummy body that I'm talking about into like uh, some smelting thing, like some sort of like yeah. like lava, liquid like, meta like, or, lo- li- or liquid, lava, who yeah, knows? liquid rock, whatever it is. They have they they have like being poured and stuff, and he keeps trying to put the body in there, and he's keep and then. Uh, Davich is like taking taking him out and then they're both in there and then one of them's in there and then eventually they flip he flips the 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 villain here into the vat of yeah. molten rock or lava and his or metal flesh whatever. boils off of his skeleton <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah super 80s it's just fun i mean all in all it's like it's it's just a fun fun time it's it's a it's a very it's watch. a very um but if you think about it, like the thing we just described is very like action movie. It's very like there's right. there's people getting shot, there's people getting killed. It's in it's in it's a savior. It's 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 um David just coming back and saving the day and getting revenge and hurrah, right, kind of moment. And that's very different from the novella. Because oh, we yeah. don't get any of that. It's more of a of a of a contemplative. He comes and he and he uses his knowledge of the right. It's an it's an intellectual victory and in, in like it's a, an intellectual victory, right? Yeah, and like his appreciation for the culture leads him to be successful in finding Zamus and saving Zamus at this. You know, and it's very different, right? <laughs> like right. that's all scrapped. And instead, we got a big showdown. We get yeah. someone getting thrown into a and, vat of molten metal and, and all. And that u- instead, ultimately, it just is fun to watch like campy stuff sometimes. Like, and that's that's what I would say sure. that this this ends up sometimes in campy realm, and I like that. It's yeah. just it, fun. Yeah, yeah. And it's not to say that it's bad. It's just it's um if if you were a, I could see that if you were a big fan of the novella before you saw this, you might have been pretty disappointed though, because it's like oh man, they took it and they made it into this other thing yeah but things so much of that is like still done today like the third act of things is just turned into like like you know a a cluster fuck of craziness going on and and like it's just they wanted something for the the trailer or they want audiences to walk out having been like how that was crazy at the end there like that third act was memorable because it was crazy and then like you know the 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 contemplative ones aren't necessarily the ones that always stick with a general audience i would say well and this was an era where sci-fi tended to be more like that there wasn't a lot of the like more like character focused you know sci-fi films coming out Mm -hmm. not a lot of it at least and it was a lot more of the like flashy star wars action scenes we want all of that ultimately it does technically end in the same place he uh he saves zamus and and they uh zamus remembers him and then then they're able to go to the home planet and and there's like a a ceremony ceremony with the the council and and i think it's shown that zamus will be continuing on its legacy and the legacy of its powerful family so uh kind of they kind of end in the same spot technically yeah Technically, I suppose um, they arrived there very different ways. Um, but yeah, I, I had the same kind of takeaway. It was fun. I yeah, I enjoyed watching it. Definitely campy, definitely cheesy. Um, you got big kind of Muppet monsters, which are kind of fun, just like never ending story. Um, and yeah, like I said at the beginning, I, I am, I'm glad that uh, Stephen E was able to commission this um, because it ended up being pretty enjoyable, and 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 I feel like I understand a little bit more about sci-fi history now. I have seen this fairly obscure sci-fi movie from the '80s, which was fun. So I don't know. It was it was a good experience, and it was definitely cool. Yeah, and like uh, you know, with things like Stranger Things being so popular right now, everybody's all in. Like they're very like in tune to the to the '80s nostalgia and everything. Yeah. And now when they when they eventually do the, uh, an Enemy Mine reference in in season four of Stranger Things, we'll be ready for yeah. it. And uh, man, I, I, I wanted to comb back through like Ready Player One and say, like, did did Ernest Klein ever mention Enemy Mine? I just didn't know what it was. Right. Totally might have. Might have. Um, yeah. But yeah. So thanks to Steven for for uh, commissioning this one, because, yeah, I wouldn't have known anything about it without that. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a cool little movie to have in my repertoire now. And some people on our Instagram were actually commenting about how they felt like this was a this was a timely movie and like it actually holds up and. And I, I can see why, you know, and, and I agree that it's like it's unfortunate that you would look at a, a movie that is like fairly heavy handed with its allegory about like understanding your enemy and understanding uh, another race and another another type of being and finding common ground and and realizing that dehumanizing and, and demonizing the other is bad <laughs> and that <laughs> if you're actually faced with them and that there you can find common ground and you can find peace and 
Like, these shouldn't be challenging subjects today in the year 2019. This shouldn't be something that is still something that needs to be discussed. But, yeah, sadly it is. And, you know, maybe heavy-handed allegory has a place, I guess. I don't know. Um, it's it's wild to me that, that, that it this isn't something that we can just look back at it and laugh and go, ha people used to think that. Yeah. Uh, that no, but it's still still going on. It's really unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. This has been a fun experience. We are going to try something a little different next week. Um, but I'm going to wait, and we're going to reveal next week's project at the very end of the episode. So stay tuned for that. It's something a little unusual. So we mentioned Stephen E. He's one of our patrons, and if you wanted to become a patron, a patron, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And uh, we have uh, we have multiple tiers that you can look at. We appreciate any any support that you can that you can give. Yeah, and and there's bonus episodes. There is the Council of Inklings where we where we talk about stuff as well. So if you wanted to connect with us, you can do that on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Our Council of Inklings, like I just mentioned, is on Facebook. Uh, definitely join that and get updates about what we're going to be covering. There's some polls that we put in there sometimes about. Uh, potential upcoming projects and as I mentioned the patreon stuff we typically will do we'll ask our patrons kind of uh, what they're thinking but with the jukebox that's also a great way to influence this podcast and decide what we what we cover next yeah and speaking of we need to decide what our our bonus episode is going to be this month our special patreon episode I should say haven't decided yet what it's going to be but we'll be announcing it soon I'm sure um and yeah we do that every month so absolutely check that out oh and if you wanted to help this podcast out in another way if you enjoyed this episode please leave us a rating and review wherever you can online whether that's on facebook whether that's on itunes itself um that's incredibly helpful also tell a friend let somebody know that you enjoyed this podcast and and uh hook you know hook us up with a new listener (laughs) that'd be awesome We want to say thank you to Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts and thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, let's go ahead and reveal what our next project's going to be, the uh, unusual project we have chosen. Do you want to you want to do the honors? Sure. We're going to be covering 1937's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh classic, the classic Disney film and the Brothers Grimm stories. So, uh I'm really looking yeah. forward to it. Very different uh, you know, at like source material and adaptation and an animated film. I love animation, so I'm excited to to dig into this one. Yeah, uh, it might come as a surprise to our listeners, but we're, we're going to try it. You know, it's something unusual for us, you know, children's animated film. But those those Brothers Grimm stories are, are reportedly quite dark and I've never actually read it. So I'll be interested to read that and to dig into some research and hopefully it'll make for a fun episode. So we hope you join us again next week. Um, if that's not really your bag, though, we are going to be covering Stephen King's It. We're going to go back and watch the original miniseries prior to Chapter 2 coming out. So we're going to have some Stephen King content coming up soon. But this was fun. Uh, and until next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>